Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indie Comic Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. Uh, my hope here is that we could do a deep dive into an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterward. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. Um, now, I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect to readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. So this week, I'm joined by writer extraordinaire of also colleague at DC Comics News, Ms. Kelly Gaines. Kelly, thank you for coming. Hello, thank you for having me. So I appreciate it. So you are on the, um, I'm on the review side and you're on the news side. So tell everybody a couple of things like, I know you, you're a writer, like you're a writer at large beyond just at DC Comics News. So tell everybody a little bit about what you do and what kind of writing you do, what you do at DCN, and then most importantly, at the end, your comic book origin story? Like, what was your first comic? <laughs> what do you read? Why comics? That kind of thing. All right. Okay, so starting, uh, starting with what I do at DCN, um, I do opinion and editorial pieces. So, and that's kind of on top of being on the, the regular DCM podcast and whatnot. Um, but opinion and editorial, from what I've gathered, kind of I will go to our editor with, some sort of an idea, like, for instance, a couple months back, or maybe could be a year back now, actually, now that I'm thinking, it was just, I like tarot cards, and I like superheroes, so I'm going to match tarot cards to superheroes just from different DC books I've read, um, or I've done things on, let me think, what was another good one, um, Native American history in DC comics, um, supernatural history in DC comics, so just kind of whatever whatever random thing has popped into my head for that week is the thing that I do. That's um, amazing. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And side DCN, I do um, a lot of freelance editing. So for actually for independent comic books, not necessarily attached to any specific indie publisher, but um, people will come to me with either a script or if they have some sort of concept ideas, um, and I'll either do kind of on levels. I'll either do the, uh, what is it, like punctuation and grammar editing, or if it's kind of a general concept where they're like, I have this idea, I have a couple chapters, but I don't really know how I'm going to build this into a series, um, kind of helping with development with that. Um, and then just on the side of that, there's, I do a little short story writing. I've done a lot of random ghost writing, um, just kind of as a way to get into writing after college. So that's always been a lot of fun. Um, but as far as comics go, I can't even remember when I initially got into comics so much as just as a kid. Um, I was really into the uh, Justice League animated series um, and also Batman the animated series. So Who is your favorite of, on the Justice League? Um, you know what? I really, I love Wonder Woman on there, but actually it's, it's a three-way tie between Wonder Woman, Hawkgirl, and The Flash. Yeah, so that, that Wally West was, so funny and I remember really well there was a scene um Black Luthor switches bodies with him and goes and like unmasks the flash and it's like who is this guy and it just I don't know something about that just made it hilarious as a kid um and yeah so from there I ended up getting a my older brother got a Teen Titans book that mm -hmm. we were allowed to have for all of three weeks and we kept it hidden under my brother's bed. And then my mom got a look at Starfire's costume. <laughs> and that was the end of that book. She threw it away immediately. 
(sighs) (laughs) So, you know, it's unfortunate, but from there it kind of, you know, for a couple years, it was a secret hobby where we would get them when we could and hide them places. And then after a while, you know, I was like, mom, I'm a teenager, which means in my head, I'm an adult and I'm going to read these books. (laughs) And, you know, that kind of, that, that was the beginning of comics for me. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, so that's cool. And um, do you remember what, like, I grew, I, I'm older than you. So um, I read, you know, I read a lot of Titans when I was younger. Um, was this like old Titans or was it, t- it was current at the time that you were, like, it was a I new one? If it wasn't current, it was very recent because I think it, um, I want to say it was roughly like a late 90s version, maybe. I'm thinking okay. this was 2005. But I, yeah, I don't, although, you know what, it's funny. I do remember the, because my mom kind of flipped through it when she took it away. And I remember the line that made her say, oh, absolutely not. And it was, uh, Beast Boy made a joke to Wonder Girl about not getting her panties in a twist. And my mom was like, no. (laughs) Wow. That was that and Starfire. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. Well, and it's funny how little Starfire's costume has changed. Everybody's costume. I mean, Beast Boy, when I started reading, was called the Changeling. He wasn't called Beast Boy. Like, he was Beast Boy, and then he became the Changeling, and then he went back to being called Beast Boy. So that's <laughs> that's funny. Um, but yeah, it's funny how little Starfire's costume has changed when you think of, like, what Speedy looks like now, or what, you know, Dick, yeah. he first became Nightwing, and he had the disco Nightwing with the, with the thing on his, the, you know, like, the big low-cut... <laughs> like yep. front of his shirt and the big wing on his back so it's funny to think she's her costume has always stayed the same and it's always been absurd like how are you I know she's an alien and that's supposed to be her princess warrior get up but it does seem kind of absurd when you think about it practically yeah, yeah. <laughs> very true yeah for sure <laughs> so but it is it, um even when she was in uh when they did Red Hood and the Outlaws and she was in that it was the same I mean that was just you yeah know, a handful of years ago so they crazy. found a look that uh you know that yeah. I guess just worked for her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually kind of pleased they didn't, um, in the show, that is not her outfit. Now, next season is all about her. The season three of Titans is going to be about her versus Blackfire. So they may unveil that. But I suspect even yeah. as racy as that show is, they'll probably give her something just, more practical to wear. Even just a little bit. Like, I would, personally, if I was running and jumping around and doing all the stuff she does, I would be very, very worried about yeah. the, all kinds of angles of that. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing good about that suit. Yeah, no. it's silly. yeah, it's funny. That's funny that that was the thing that turned my mouth. And so now yep. that she knows, now you're an adult and, you're, and you obviously write for comic books, um, write for a comic book website. How does she feel? Is she disappointed in you? <laughs> oh, not at all. That's the bizarre <laughs> thing is as I've gotten older, I actually, um, last spring, I got to be on uh, a panel about DC at the uh, Wizard World Philly convention, and my parents came to it. That's awesome. (laughs) They both, and they had no idea what was going on. They had no idea what I was talking about, but they decided to come just to be supportive, and I'm not sure if they really understand a lot of what I write about, but they're sort of, I, I guess they would say they're happy that I'm doing something I like to do. So, That's awesome. Yeah, it worked out. <laughs> it is. Yeah, and it is. It's such a fun thing. And we're, it's a great group over there. I mean, I reached out to you. This is the first time listeners, for, so listeners, this is the, I mean, I've heard Kelly's voice before because I listened to the DCN podcast, but this is the first time we've actually talked. But the DCN group is like so willing to do things. You know, I sent her a mm-hmm. message on our Slack channel. I'm like, hey, I'm doing the show. And she's like, yep, 
this is the book I want to do. It wasn't like, <laughs> nah, you know, I mean, if you're in that Slack channel, I mean, I've had nothing but great, um, you know, great responses from people and everybody's really collaborative there and it's, it's super cool. So um, I'm really pleased. Thanks for giving up your an hour or so of your time to do this with me today and nerd oh, out. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. On, on a Star Wars day when we're recording this, it's May 4th and we're going to not talk about Star Wars at all. So, <laughs> no. Although technically Star Wars used to be at Dark Horse Comics. So that'll be my way in to uh, talk sure. about Dark Horse Comics. So this is weird. Um, as I was saying to Kelly off air, this is my first Dark I've been, this is, will be the 16th or 17th episode of this show. And this is my first Dark Horse comic, which is weird because Indie Comics Spotlight, I thought for sure I'd be doing Dark Horse right away. But just through whatever weird, uh, you know, flukes and what the guests were interested in. So, um, so here we go. I'm going to give a little bit of the history of Dark Horse Comics and we'll talk about our topic of the week and why you picked it. And then we'll just start talking. So uh, Dark Horse Comics was actually founded in 1986. So it's kind of one of the longer running indie comics, even though it kind of been surpassed in popularity as an indie comic by image. Uh, Dark Horse still, you know, holds its own. It's definitely in the top four of, you know, it's indie, indie comics. It's the number two to, to images number one as far as numbers go. So it was founded in 1986 by Mike Richardson as an offshoot of his Oregon comic book retail chain, Things from Another World. And Richardson pursued the idea of establishing an ideal atmosphere for creative professionals. And 30 years later, it has grown it to be the third largest publisher in the United States. So according to their thing, it says third, but I think I read that Image actually sold more than them. So but of course, that's what they'll say. So we'll just say they're third and I'll take back everything I just said. So the cool thing about Richardson is what he does and what a lot of these indie comic groups do is they 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 allow you to pitch them and um if you're a, if you're a creator and you have completed work you can come to them with a full pitch and they'll put it out for you and because they've got such a big platform they really have um such a wide variety of stuff the topic that we're going to do today is obviously a lot less known than maybe one of their star wars titles or they used to do buffy um so they have some huge huge titles at dark horse and then they also what that does is it paves the way for smaller kind of more thoughtful, less splashy titles um, like the book we're going to do today, which is um, by Cullen Bunn, who is the writer, and Tyler Crook is the artist and colorist. And so it's very Spartan. It's a tight team. Um, it, the book we're doing is called, um, it's, a, it's a horror book. It is called Harrow County. Um, I say Harrow, Kelly. How do you say it? I say Harrow, yeah. Okay, sweet. <laughs> Glad we're on the right front. Harrow County, um, it first premiered the very first uh, issue premiered on May 13th, 2015. So um, it's a horror comic that um, essentially there's a, there's a town, there's this Harrow County, which is like kind of unincorporated place where 18 years prior, there was a witch that was burned and um, because that's what you do, of course. <laughs> and, um, and then now 18 years later, we meet Emmy, who is the star of the book. And she is uh, maybe a witch, maybe not a witch. And we'll talk, Kelly and I will talk about that. So how did you come to this book and why, when I reached out to you and said, hey, what do you want to do? This was the, your first answer. What was it about this that drew you to it? This actually is funny. This book, I was seeing on shelves for years, maybe. Maybe not years, maybe it's months and I'm just exaggerating in my head, but I kept seeing the covers for it and thinking that they were so grotesque. And I remember, you know, flipping through back issues and being like, whoa, there's like skin and weird bloody creatures. And I, and I was so not into it. And then um, 
I think I just happened to read past a little description of what the actual series was about. And I was like, huh, I love old Southern towns and witches. This is, this is right up my alley. So I picked it up. Um, and I think by, by the time I got this, they were already up to maybe volume seven in the trade paperbacks. And I went through one through six in maybe a month just ordering, doing one, ordering another one, ordering another one. Like, it's just such a, it's one of those stories that you don't have to know a ton of outside information. There's not a lot of, uh, there, there aren't a lot of dots that you need to connect. It's just this sort of, it happens in a vacuum, I guess. It's just Harrow County. That's all you have to know. And you can start and end. And it's this nice little compact bubble almost. Yeah, there's 32, there's 32 total issues, right? So there's eight volumes, and we're going to cover the first two volumes, just those first eight issues, um, because uh, there's so much going on there. <laughs> if we tried to do it all, there'd be no way. Originally, we had thought about only doing first half, and, and um, just for full transparency, I didn't manage to get through the first, those other eight <laughs> issues, but I'm glad, because honestly, when I got to the end of this, and I was like, and it was probably with self-fulfilling prophecies, like, I could maybe find the time to read eight more but honestly there's so much to say and I have so many notes hopefully Kelly's cool with that and of course she is so, oh yeah <laughs> um so we're going to talk about those first eight issues so I now so for me I came to these guys through their other dark horse book uh Manor Black which is drawn the same way um another creepy you know just what I love about it and I love what you said is it happens in a vacuum and I think this is a sign and you're a writer so I think we should talk about I mean, we'll, we'll give Tyler Crook his due, but let's talk about what Cullen Bunn does by setting up this universe. As you mentioned, it's set in a vacuum and there's, there's just, the rules are self-contained because uh, there's no outside influence until later in volume two, we meet some people from the outside, but, but um, even those people have kind of been sequestered inside a version of this world. So um, try to explain to people what, what the rules are of this universe that he's created um, and how that makes it like so believable. Like, was there something about the way that he writes his storytelling that, that made that sucked you right in? Cause I'm with you. Like as soon as you start reading, you just can't stop. Yeah. yeah. I would say part of it is almost the way it's introduced like an old folktale or a fairy tale where, you know, if you open a, a brother's grim story, and it just starts with once upon a time or once there was a, you don't need to know anything else except what they're telling you in that story. And it's the same thing with Harrow County where you start out and it's, you know, there was this tree, there was this witch, there were these people, and this is what they did. And now, you know, here is 18 years later and this young woman is about to go through a big change. And it sort of, it, it just, develops on itself. So the rules of Harrow County essentially are that we're not concerned about what's happening outside of Harrow County because Emmy's not and because the people inside Harrow County aren't. And we sort of find out through through the course of the story that there's a reason they're not all that concerned with life outside of Harrow County, but it's it kind of has that it, it's almost like he picked the perfect setting because it has that kind of old sleepy town feel where there is a big world out there and there's interesting things going on in it, but the priority for Emmy, for uh, her pa, for everybody else is just what's happening right here at home. Um, and that lends itself really well to this kind of modern folk tale. 
I agree. What blew my doors off is, and again, we'll kind of jump around a little, but I don't want to give away who shows up in the automobile. But when I first saw a car in this, I didn't understand that cars existed in this universe. Like, <laughs> I really, honestly, like I thought um, wherever it was they were, it was almost like, um, like I feel M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, that kind of uh, yeah. you know, from your neck of the woods up there in Pennsylvania, um, I'm assuming you drive right past that where, you know, where they're all trapped inside the nature preserve. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure that's totally real, but that's what it felt like is, is there's this, it's this self-contained, like Harrow County is, is blocked off. And, and it didn't, it didn't occur to me just because when you first meet the people, you know, they're burning a witch. And so you automatically have a set in your mind of when that is. Um, and it wasn't, in the 1900s. <laughs> it didn't occur to me that that would be happening. And then to find out that there's automobiles and the, the world, there's technology out there because when we see people being, you know, on um, horse-drawn carriages, uh, Emmy's best friend, Bernice, shows up with her dad on it or grandpa. It's hard to know the, the way that it's drawn uh, because her own dad could also be her grandpa, the way that they're, the way that they're drawn. Um, but, you know, shows up on a horse-drawn carriage and they have, you know, they're, they're raising cattle and it just seems like an old-timey farm. So, so I thought it was such a cool thing that when the car first shows up, it punched me right in the teeth and it changed <laughs> my whole perception of when this was. Did you feel that? Yes, I think initially um, reading it, I was trying to place it by the clothing. I was like, all right, so maybe it's 1900, maybe it's 18-something and then I think that's part of the, the allure of, um, you know, Cammie when she's introduced as a character. She is just this other world of glamorous, like, I have a car and a butler. <laughs> and it's, yeah. It's, it's like another planet almost. But yeah, the car is kind of, it, it throws you for a loop. And then it also tells you exactly, well, not exactly, but it gives you a better idea of the when. So it's like, all right, so maybe we're looking at like 1920 something. Yeah, it was really fascinating. I just didn't see it coming because truly, and you know, and, and, and I thought you're right about the clothes and, and trying to just pinpoint the technology, but it's, um, you know, because there's a scene in there. Um, so Emmy is a healer. And this is one of the signs of... Um, witchcraft like Hester in the original story the original witch that they burned Hester she could heal but there was also a balance so for everything that she healed things would die and and so you know ultimately as the all the livestock and stuff died the town decided burn the witch and um insert your own Monty Python joke here and so <laughs> so they're burning the witch and and there's obviously repercussions and and again it's it's pretty clear again the rules that that bun sets up which is there's always going to be like a balance there's always going to be an opposite reaction um but but even though even though there's positive things that happen with this power there's always they they see it negatively and and i just thought well in a town that needs healers because there's not good enough medicine so again it blew my mind to say well this is the 1920s and i understand 1920s aren't the 2020s but there was, there was medicine. I mean, they, were, they weren't using <laughs> leeches anymore in 1920 to cure people, but it was like, the one guy's even like, well, the pharmacist is closed up, so what am I supposed to do? I can't get any medical care. I'm going to go to the witch to, to heal my daughter. <laughs> what? Wait. It's crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? What do you think about the idea that he set this up? Like, I guess the question is, what, what do you think about what they did to Hester and then how they treat Emmy? Are you know, 
do we, is that what we do? Do we do that to people when we don't understand them? Or do you think, based on what we learn as things unfold, that Hester was actually evil? It's, I think one of the interesting things here is initially, you know, when you first open the book and you see they're burning a witch, uh, my gut reaction, because, you know, we standing here in 2020 have a lot of knowledge about the reality of witch trials, which was that most of the time it was completely off base. Um, so initially your gut reaction is to think, oh, this poor girl, like she shouldn't be getting burned. But then also if you look at the way Tyler Crook draws her, even from the beginning, there's something really sinister about Hester. And I think even in those first few panels, there's something almost innocent and kind of sheepish about the people of Harrow County. They, they look terrified and, and frustrated and confused. And so I think just on the visual cues, pretty early on, I was able to accept that, you know, maybe Hester isn't, isn't that great of a person. And we kind of get these different depictions of her, depending on who's telling her backstory, where when it's coming from, you know, Emmy's paw, it's, oh, well, you know, she was a witch. She did these terrible things. We had to kill her. Um, when it's coming from one of the other townsfolk, it's, oh, you know, she was just lonely and she tried so hard. Um, you know, and then later we see it come from the big beastly haint where he's talking about her backstory. And even though they're all a little bit different, I think you can kind of get the feeling that Hester is maybe not as, uh, you know, she's this girl in a pretty white dress and, and maybe she's not that, you know, kind of innocent. Um, but at the same time, I do like the way, um, and I, I think it just is part of what makes me a fun of Colin, uh, a fun a fan of Cullen Bunn's work. Um, he, I believe, grew up in you know kind of a smaller uh, southern or midwest area, and really understands the dynamic of towns that aren't as, I guess, immediately connected to bigger urban areas where you can you kind of can exist in a back in a vacuum in a sense. You kind of can exist where you know, our way of life has been working for us. And especially if we're looking at like the dawn of the 18 or the 1900s, you know, technology was there, it was getting bigger, but it still wasn't so prevalent in society that you necessarily needed it. Um, so I guess maybe they just, they had a witch doctor and a pharmacist and you went to one or the other and that was just enough for them. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that is an excellent um, way to see it. Yeah, I, I, I keep, I feel like by the end of part two, you have a better sense that, um, at the end of issue eight, you have a better sense that Hester's um, not great um, and was abusive and manipulative. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it is, it is, it's, I was with you right from the jump. You were like, God, you know, burn the witch. And, and um, you think about how witches are always young girls. And there's, there's a commentary there about, um, and they're not young girls. They're never 12. It's always teenage girls. There's, yeah. and so there's always a creep factor, like an ick factor there that um, what is it that these girls did besides just exist? Nothing. They just became women. And it's interesting that when we meet Emmy, we meet her two days before her 18th birthday. So there's this literal womanhood you know the difference between she even mentions that's like <laughs> 17 years and 364 days and then she doesn't feel that much different the next day it's just a data <laughs> but to the world she's a totally different person and it's it's on her 18th birthday 
that the decision is made that Emmy is the reincarnation or daughter or both. And we can talk, we'll talk about that a little of Hester and then they have to kill her. And it's like, and it's so stark because it's literally on her 18th birthday that the day before she cured a, she cured a sick calf and isn't she lovely. And then the day after (laughs) chasing her down through the woods to kill her. And, and, and I think it's really fascinating. And I think it was, it was a, the commentary on witchcraft in general, um, uh, about the way that it was only women, you know, we, we, that's what made Harry Potter such a unique phenomenon, right? Is that it's witchcraft, but it's a man, it's a male character. And of course there's witches in there, but like what warlocks were, and we don't ever really think about them in the same evil ways. There's not, there's no history of burning the warlock. It's right. always the witch. And, and you're, so, you know, I'm glad that you picked this because, you know, as you know, full well, that comic book, the comic book industry is, is male heavy. Um, both as readers and in commentary. So I'm super thrilled that you're on here because I, you know, it's way better to have this conversation with a woman than it would be if like two dudes are like, yeah, man, women are treated like crap. So (laughs) what do you think of like as, so, so how does that reflect? And was that something that drew you in um, the way that Emmy is portrayed and the way that like switching over to womanhood, it's a totally different life. How did, how do you think Bun did capturing that? I think that was one of the things that impressed me the most with um, this entire series, because there's a little part of me that's always, always expects at some point you're going to get into that weird sexualized territory, especially if you're talking about, you know, a girl turning 18 or something. And really, I think in a way this almost better portrayed my experience of kind of coming into womanhood and going through puberty in the sense that things are weird and crazy. And you're not so much thinking about, you know, what people think you should be thinking about. Really, it's just the world seems like it's whipping up into this kind of frenzy and you're supposed to go through this transformation that maybe you're not ready for, you don't understand. And I think with Emmy, it's, she's so well written to mentally, she's still a little girl in a lot of ways. Mentally, she hasn't hit that age bump. She, you know, like you said, she, she, wakes up on her 18th birthday and she's like this feels no different than 17 and that's kind of a really good point that sort of internally even though you've hit that milestone mentally you're no different than you were the day before so then when there's all these extra pressures and for Emmy it's really bizarre extra pressures where now her entire town wants to kill her out of the blue yeah it's very like you know it's it, it does a very good job of showing that kind of confusion and alienation that can sort of come out of nowhere at some point when someone's developing as a person. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And again, because of what you said before too, that, that Bun puts this in a kind of a, and I'm air quoting, people can't see me, like a backwater town that, that is the world has cars and technology, but they don't still, they still have horse-drawn carriages. And, and we all know that those towns must have existed once cars started to exist. It took a long time. For, for them to be ubiquitous. And even into the 30s and 40s, there were still towns where people rode horses. That's just what happened. And so, and so what, what he does is, by her growing up in that town, she's allowed to be 18 and be an adult woman. But still, like you said, her, her best friend, you know, is the same. They're both kind of stunted because they don't know any different. There's no worldly experience. It doesn't even seem like there's boys that their age, like she and Bernice. <laughs> are the only two teenage girls in town. And then there's like little boys and like grown men. 
Um, so they would have no experience with any of that because Bernice even says, well, you're going to go out and meet a boy. And she's like, I wouldn't even know what to do. <laughs> I don't even know what that means because it's, you know, they were homeschooled and literally um, infantilized in a way to try to obviously keep her from becoming a witch, but also just to, um, it actually works to her advantage, right? So in this story, what happens is, is on her 18th birthday, the town, and then there's a really horrible scene. Like I have daughters, so, um, you know, who are, all, who are all adult women. So um, this idea of like a father choking his daughter to death, trying yeah. to strangle her. And she's, a, you know, she's, it was just terrifying to see because the look on his face was kind of anguish and she couldn't wrap her mind around it. Um, what, it, it was shocking to me too. I feel like they just, the shocks don't, don't stop. Did you expect Pa to turn on her like that when that happens? That was, see, I think the first volume of this series played with my expectations so much because initially, no, I never would have thought he, he would turn on her. But then as soon as she overhears that conversation by the tree and you hear him talking about killing her, then it's like, oh my God, he really will. So I expected the entire entire series, in a sense, to take this really dark downward spiral where it's just her dad will attempt to kill her. She'll end up killing him. It'll just be anarchy and chaos. And I like the way that they sort of flipped it back where she shows her dad mercy and he ends up kind of coming back into the fold. And, you know, they come to terms with the fact that they're in a bizarre, impossible situation and that Emmy's you know, is willing to look at the rest of Harrow County and say, I know something weird is going on here. I know I have these powers that I don't understand, but I'm going to do this on my own terms. I'm not going to be a villain because you expect me to be a villain, but also stop trying to kill me. <laughs> right. Well, stop trying to kill me. Let's, yeah, there's like a weird truce and it's, and I think that's right. And it all ties back to, you know, this whole like flowering into womanhood where there's no flowering that happens. It's like one day, She's 18, so now we can kill her. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so, and I think the line was, her dress fits her the same way on her 18th birthday, on, when she turned 18 and did the day before. Yeah. And I think there's something about that of, of her being that person that then allows them to go like, right, we're all being stupid too. These are just days. It's all arbitrary. And we've, we've created this um, legend around Emmy and this whole town has literally watched her grown up. I mean, you talk about it takes a village. That's what they all they're, they're there to do. They're there to watch her grow up and hope that she stays good. And then if she doesn't, they're going to kill her and they don't give her a chance um, yeah. to, to prove it. And then when she does prove herself, it is amazing how um, they all just are like, okay, we were going to kill you yesterday. Um, it, it, and it, it, I feel like there's a commentary there that Bun is making about the decisions we make and the choices we make um, about our own um, life. So she's raised by Pa, we don't know his name, and her Ma, who died when she was a little girl, whom she loves. She talks about her mother and that she loves. And that's not her real mother. Hester is her mother. And I think there's this idea of like nature versus nurture happening here that her nature is she's a witch. And you talked about the big beastly haint and, the, and the, for listeners, um, uh, haint is spelled like the word ain't, ain't, but with an H in the front. And that's kind of the generic term for creepy crawlies that live in the woods. Um, <laughs> and she, she just commands them. She has this skinless boy that follows her around as her familiar. She keeps his skin in her bag. 
Um, and he literally has no skin and he just does her bidding. It's so creepy, but through it all, she's making choices that the town's like, yep, you've got skin in your bag and there's a skinless boy living underneath your house, but you're nice now because you've made a choice to do it. And so it's like he, he goes out of his way to show how bizarre it is, but also that we are not only stuck with the hand that we're dealt. We can, we can trade in, we can choose to fold, we can choose to do different things um, with that hand. And I think it's just really in a horror comic to have that deeper level that anybody could read and go like, oh, I can relate to Emmy because I made this choice when I was 18. When I was an adult, I chose to do X, Y, Z, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I think about my choices of, of choosing where I went off to college when I turned 18. It was up to me. I had a couple of offers to do different things. And I took the one that I thought would suit me best, maybe not the one that was the most financially smart or the whatever. I felt like I, I made a choice that was unpopular with, with people that I knew, but it was the choice that I felt was right for me. And then you have to deal with those consequences. Did you relate to that, what Emmy does there? Like, could you, could you look back at yourself and be like, yep, I totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, and actually, even at the point when I, I probably read this for the first time maybe a year ago. Um, and even then, it's a message that kind of rings true throughout your adult life that there are always going to be people who tell you that you have to do things a certain way or think about things a certain way. Um, and sort of shape you into this mold of, well, this is who you are, so this is what you do. And, you know, in Emmy's case, it's very literal where they're saying, you are Hester, you are this witch, and, you know, we know what you're going to do, so that's why you have to die. And she's, you know, comes back and says, no, I'm not, and that's not the type of person that I'm going to be because it's not who I am. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely when I first read this, and I'm looking back, it really does sort of, I wouldn't say so much my, um, you know, outward choices like college or whatnot. Um, but I can see it just in different situations that have happened in my personal life, um, you know, with handling situations with friends or ex-boyfriends or anything like that, where everyone expects you to go left, but you know personally that you need to go right. And yeah, it just, it's a really bizarre kind of gory fantasy way of dealing with the the fact that choice becomes such an important part of your life once you really hit 18 that now it's mom and dad can't make the choices for you anymore now it's you need to you know make, you need to be in charge of who you are yeah and i think i love that that's well said because it's she literally has to choose she's got so many choices to make she chooses not to kill her dad who almost killed her she chose not to she could she commands this kind of undead army of of fiery ghoulies that are haints and she chooses not to destroy the whole town um constantly throughout the story she she says well you know paul i could just snap my fingers and make this happen and he's like but you don't want to do that do you and she doesn't she'd rather swing a hammer than what was it something about she could just make 10 people appear out of thin air to, to do the work. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's like literally choosing the hard path um, versus the easy path. And I think that's where uh, Cammie comes in. So uh, Cammie's her twin sister who lives in the city and um, has the car, which is when the car shows up, I'm like, what the hell's going on? Cause it was at the end of a, end of an episode issue where 
you see this other person, you just see her from the back and when you turn around, it's Emmy's face, but she's dressed like a New York doll. And you're like, what the hell? And then you find out that it's, it's not her, it's, it's her twin, literally evil twin, um, soap opera twist there, everybody. Um, but she made a different choice, right? Or my question to you is, do you feel like, do you feel Cammy, because Cammy's evil, everybody. Um, <laughs> Cammy chooses to be evil or is that, is it again in the nature versus nurture because Emmy is raised by Pa who loves her and Ma who loved her until she died in a town that took care of her. She has best friend, Bernice, where Cammy's raised in kind of this like sequestered New York penthouse, almost like a, like a caricature of Paris Hilton kind of person. <laughs> do you, um, do you think that Cammy had a choice or is Cammy reacting the way that she was raised to react because she wasn't the only person around her is her familiar who isn't a skinless boy, but who is a, a mindless butler. I think it's a mix of both in a way. Um, because there is a part of me that feels bad for Cammy, especially when, when she first shows up at the farm, um, we're dealing with the fact that even though things have kind of settled down and there's this whole truth, Emmy still feels isolated. Emmy still feels alone. And even when Bernice comes back, it's, oh, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. Like even her best friend has taken time to really come around to try to be her friend again. And even inside of that, there's still the fact that no one can really understand what it is that she went through. Um, so when we meet Cammy, it's kind of at a point where she comes in and says, well, I feel just as isolated as you. We're going to be sisters. We're going to be best friends. Um, you just have to get over all of the, the people here and just be just like me. And, but then that's where I stopped feeling bad for Cammy because on, on one end, I understand that she feels the same way as Emmy. But then on the other hand, um, she doesn't give it a lot of time before she starts just diving right into trying to ruin Emmy's life. She just immediately is like, you know, okay, so you don't want to do things my way. I'm going to go out and screw up your town, commit some murders, get all the the bad ghosts together. <laughs> like she just, she snaps too quickly and too hard where it's kind of, I do feel bad for her, but she also grew up in a nice penthouse in New York. Like she had, she didn't have to necessarily be a terrible person. That's right. She, that's what I agree. I agree with all of that. I think she is definitely a product of her own environment, right? If you grow up pampered and rich and treated like a princess um, who can do no wrong, you may act that way. But again, you don't have to act that way. Like Emmy did grow up and was loved and everything, but she, she had the opportunity to be evil and she chose, she made the choice not to. And it's, so it's at that same exact moment, they have the same, they're twins. So at that, on their 18th birthday, that's when Cammy decides, oh yeah, I'm going to be evil. And Emmy has to decide I'm not going to be. I'm going to fight the Hester that's within me. And because there's all these evil creepy crawlies, um, like Kelly said, who's out in the who are out in the woods and surrounding Harrow County to do her bidding. And there's this one giant, monstrous. I don't even know. It's I can't even <laughs> describe. It's like a bull. Um, like I don't know. And this is this will be our great transition into Crook's art art in a second. But um, and they have she and Emmy. He and Emmy have this uneven truce about. Hester was mean to it and Emmy's not going to be mean to it and make it do its bidding and leave it alone. And then that was when I knew Cammy was rotten because, I mean, you know, Cammy's got ulterior motives, but she immediately goes out there and tries to tempt this thing like, like with rotten chicken and she starts chomping mm -hmm. at it. And it's like, so it's, it's so manipulative and it's so hurtful. 
And what I think is amazing, what Bun does, is he makes us feel sympathy for this giant beast, right? It's like she's turned yeah. this scary monster into like Ferdinand the Bull, right? It was, even though it doesn't look anything like Ferdinand the Bull, it's this giant <laughs> creepy monster, but it has the part, it was just so, it was so smart. And, and when the villain is, it looks exactly like the hero, um, you know, which is like, you know, kind of white girl from the country who <laughs> has never harmed a person in her life. Um, it's really, it's just, it's so, it was just really well executed and it made, it again, toys with us. Because I'm with you, like you want to feel bad for her. You're like, oh man, your life sucks because you didn't have a loving parent. But wow, this doesn't mean you just get to be a turd. Just <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about Tyler. Um, Tyler Crook. So, um, like I said, I first experienced Tyler Crook writing with Cullen Bunn or drawing for Cullen Bunn uh, on Manor Black. And I was blown away by um, everything that he does. It is, <laughs> it is, it, it's, it's not what your typical comic book would look like. Um, how would you just, I won't, I've been rambling. How would you describe what it is Tyler Crook is doing in this, Kelly? I think, I mean, on one hand, it seems very, I'm not great with art styles, but it has that like rustic watercolor kind of look. And it does look a lot like, um, it, it looks like an old fairy tale style almost. It's very, it's not meant to look ultra realistic. You can kind of see that it's um, it, sort of playing on the fact that this is a world outside of our own. He's not necessarily trying to make Harrow County or any of the characters here look like uh you know look like something that we can recognize right away and i also really really enjoy the way the haints look they are so creative i mean there's there's that one guy they show a little bit towards the end of volume two who's like this black swamp tar monster thing <laughs> like right looks yeah. like a bubble right yeah <laughs> and then you know there's there's the beast with the you know he's kind of like a large black bull with four eyes and you know just a, a lot going on there and then the skinless boy which I think was possibly the first cover I saw and was just horrified by because I'm like oh my god what is this what is that I know god it's so and he does Tyler does the covers too so it's all him the whole way yeah, yeah and it looks it's so grotesque but also really really beautiful um and yeah and it's funny because it's then you look at the skinless boy and the first immediate thought is, oh my God, that's disgusting. And then he becomes one of the most lovable characters within, you know, within one volume. It's amazing. Yeah, it, there's it a, really there's does work. The scene when, and I've got to say, I absolutely burst out laughing when um, Emmy's laying on her bed. She comes into a room and the skinless, the skin of the skinless boy talks. The skinless boy itself doesn't talk. The mouth is on the face that she keeps in her bag. So the skin, it like hangs out in her bag and she comes in a room and it's gotten out and it's like been slithering around a room. And then they both lay down on her bed and like have a chat. And it was, I laughed because it's like, again, it's so endearing and it shouldn't be on its face. It's disgusting. But uh, it, he made it so lovely like that like you said that character and i know it's part of its bun but i agree it's it's because crook is almost leaving spaces in in his the, the people's faces are circles they look like faces but it's like there's so much room he gives us and it might be because he does the colors and like you mentioned it's like an old watercolor and it feels like he's actually doing the colors with the paintbrush instead of with a pencil and i don't know if he is 
but you're right. It's so, so there's always a space in there for us to recognize this is creepy and whatever, but the words matter and the actions matter. And so it can be as grotesque as possible because, because it cares and it's always offering warnings and it, and the looks on its skin, skinless face is of concern. <laughs> and it's such a weird thing to say. There's a skinless face that shows concern, but it does. Yeah. yeah. You know what, actually, I, there's one scene, I think it might be in the first issue, but when she first brings the skinless boy home, um, she, she puts him in a drawer and she's the drawer and she's like, I don't know if you can see me, but my pa told me if boys have eyes, they'll peek. And because she's about yeah. to change her clothes. That's right. Oh my God, she does. I'm like, this little girl just brought a, a ghost home from the woods and her concern is it can't see me change. Right. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> I know I'm flipping a lot about where her head is. That's true. I'm flipping through the, the digital. I have it digitally. Um, so I'm flipping through it just to take a look to try to do some some better descriptions of of the way that the skinless boy looks. But I think you did. I think it's 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 one of those things that I would say to anybody that um, don't be turned off by this. Like what Kelly said, see the beauty in what Tyler Crook does. It's it's grotesque on purpose. He, he's forcing you to stare at it and take the time. This book is, it can't be rushed. And part of that is the story itself is like you said, is in a vacuum and it's really straightforward storytelling in that there's heroes and villains and there's twists and turns. And I'm shocked a lot, but I'm, if this were a novelization, you'd want to tear through it in one sitting. But with this because of Crook's artwork and more importantly, his coloring, take your time. It really feels like every single panel is a painting. And if you have a digital version like I do, and you can do comics mode where the whole one panel is a full page, I would highly recommend that on the biggest resolution on a computer screen or the sharpest tablet you have, because you will see so many de little details. I can't imagine how long it took him to do this. And all of his artwork is that way. It's this, um, it's the shading is amazing. I, I, yeah, like you said, it's like an old watercolor painting, but it, it hasn't come to life. But did you feel the movement in his, in his artwork? I feel like everybody's always in motion. Yeah, especially when, uh, when she's like bursting down through the forest with her little army of, of paints behind her, or even just whenever it is that Emmy's crossing from the farm through the woods, it's really interesting how you you can almost feel the woods like every twig crack every little sound the the creaks of floorboards it's it's all in there and it does it in a way that almost you know because you have to assume a little town at, at this time period with no real technology it's going to be quiet and so he he kind of reminds you how quiet it is by showing like a, a twig snapped and you can hear that these floorboards you can hear every little movement um, yes, there is a lot of movement in this book. Yeah, there is. And I think there's a bridge that she crosses when she goes into the woods. Yeah. Um, you know, and I always think of that. I'm with you. It's like, as she's crossing, every time she crosses it, I'm like, that's the, that's the transition. And so um, visually it changes. The color palette changes because it's darker in the woods. But also, like you said, you can hear her. You feel her walking across it. You hear the boards. It's an old wooden <laughs> bridge. Um, and there's even a scene later on just to just to go to your point, when she and Pa are fixing their bridge, their um, porch by hand, they're like putting new planks on there. And again, what a what a th 
it's it's you wouldn't think like a scene of a father and a daughter building a porch would be um, worth talking about. But <laughs> fact, but the fact of the matter is, is that is allowing you as a reader because Crook's artwork is so so engrossing. You know that's going to sound different now. The next time you see them walk on the porch, it's going to make a different sound because his even the way he's colored that new wood, you can tell it's new. You know, like if you're walking on a boardwalk and you can see how they'll change like every, like, oh, that, that one was broken. So it'll be, there's one new piece of wood. Right, right. And it's visually, you know, you're like, oh, if that one needed to be replaced, what's up with this one I'm on? Am I going to fall? <laughs> am I going to? I never thought of that before, actually. Yes. Huh. I always think that. I always, I always, I always think that. Um, but I, but I, it was just such an interesting thought that that he he put such detail in there um, to know that now the whole universe that they live in is is changed a little, and um, it, it is. It's I can't get over how how frenetic it is for it being such a, a comic that's about sitting around. I mean, I mean, sitting half the time, but there's always something happening. Like there's a, there's a shot of, of her healing this little girl in, early in volume one. And you see like the very last shot on this page. And I can't, I don't know which book it's in, but um, she's carrying the baby into the house in the background, but in the foreground of it, you see the cow, the calf that she healed like prancing about. And again, it's just like a subtle thing. There's no words on that page, but it's just another acknowledgement of what's about to happen inside that house. She's going to do to that baby what she just did to this calf on page four. And it's a nice callback. And again, you see the, the calf, like almost like it's prancing. And what visual storytelling. I, I, they're such a great team. And I don't know how much, uh, I don't know them. So maybe they'll listen to this. I'll tweet this at them <laughs> and they'll, they'll respond to us and say, this is how our process do you know how much did you dig into this? I honestly didn't find out how much Cullen gives Tyler to, to, you know, how much rope he gives him or if he's like on panel 46, dancing calf, you know, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I actually, it's really great. But in the back of um, the trade paperbacks, they have little, almost like behind the scenes featurettes, if you could oh. do that in a book. And there is one, I forget which issue it's for, but they have part of one of the scripts. And I think, um, oh. you know, Bun kind of says, because it, it started out with a, a short story that then he wanted to make into a comic script. Um, and he said, you know, initially he kind of really overwrote it. And then as he worked with Tyler, he was like, yeah, I can give him very sort of sparse details. And he knows exactly what to do. Um, so I, I guess they kind of developed that like trust between the, the writer and the artist. And on top of that, if you actually read the, this little excerpt of script, he doesn't give a ton. It is very much just, you know, grotesque looking haints rising out of, you know, a bog basically. And yeah, I guess, um, I guess Crook just has to have that kind of mental connection to be able to turn it into that because it does actually seem really sparse like if I was writing um I mean once you've worked with someone a bit then you kind of have a sense of what he of what the other person means or what the other person will do but I would have such a hard time trusting someone to just yes gross things are coming out of the woods <laughs> and, and it's just it's just so eloquently done and that and I really like um just the, I, I find in a lot of comic books that there's a lot of 
sort of internalized monologuing or narrator talking, sometimes it can get really boring and feel overdone. And that's not the case in Harrow County at all. So much of it is narration, but the way the, the um, little thought bubbles will look or just the way it's paced makes it okay because you still feel like the story's moving you're still getting to where you have to go so it's i mean they have a partnership made in heaven i guess <laughs> i agree <laughs> and i think that i think that really helps and you know i i feel like sometimes it's even better than um early on in this um in my series of shows here um carl brian came on and we talked spawn he loves spawn and spawn is fine you know the art is amazing but those early issues of spawn and again, I'm going to shit on Todd McFarlane, who's a billionaire. Who am I? But um, <laughs> he's overly describing things that are happening because he's writing and drawing his own stuff. So there's nobody there to say, you've already shown us that, Todd. Let, the art, let your beautiful art um, that is museum quality do the work. Um, you know, and I think so sometimes it, I think having a partner is better than doing it yourself because when you're writing and drawing it yourself, there's nobody there to offer you a different opinion and there's nobody there like you said that you can trust and so for if that script and i'm gonna i'm gonna dig that script up if if um cullen says grotesque well your version of grotesque and my version of grotesque could be different he has to trust tyler's version of grotesque and i feel like like he's allowing that to happen um and he's giving him a story to tell. And maybe it may take Tyler four panels to draw something that he only wrote one line to do. Uh, and that makes it makes for a better work, I think, when you work collaboratively. I mean, like me with the show. I could just every week come on and, you know, say, here's why I spend an hour telling you my interior monologue on this topic. <laughs> Um, you know, because this is a deep dive show. It's not just like, like we spoil things and we say what's going on. So it's way better to hear your thoughts and to bounce back and forth, you know, so, so having, a, having a partner in anything creative is really important, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've just finished writing a novel and, and, you know, you say you don't, you never do that alone. Every day I have a new idea, I'd go out to my wife and be like, oh, what about this? <laughs> like, she feels like she lived with these people as long as I did, you know, in my right. head. Because every time a new idea, I'd say, what do you think of this? Or she'd read pages and we'd talk through it. And, and you know, ultimately the decisions are mine. But like having someone that every day I can go out and say, I'm thinking about this. And she's like, ah, you know, and you can gauge yeah. by that reaction, you know. So, yeah, I agree this is a match made in heaven or hell, depending on how terrified <laughs> you are of this. But what I think is great about what Crook does is that this is such a scary book. And in the hands of someone like Todd McFarland, it would be, it would be too much for me to read. Oh, absolutely. You know, like you said, you were turned off a little bit by some of those covers, but imagine if Jim Lee did the cover. <laughs> oh God, no. Right? It's, oh. it, 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 what, right. You can't even fathom because it's like, it's, it's so good. It's so realistic. It's so photorealistic. I mean, that's why, Jim Lee's Batman is the Batman, right? I mean, that's the best Batman ever because it's like, that's what Batman would have to look like in real life. Right. And I don't want to know what faceless boy looks like in real life. Absolutely I want not. Tyler Crook to draw it <laughs> so that I can sleep at night. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so the, so um, was there any other things that we, I know we can't cover it all. Was there any other things you had in your notes? I mean, I know I didn't get through everything, but you know, I also know, Nobody wants to hear two people talk for 17 hours. You know, I try to keep it <laughs> hour, hour and 15 minutes. Um, but since I know we've got more to come, I don't really want to, you know, the ending of this um, 
if they never made more than these eight, it's a really tight ending, I think. Um, yeah. I really think that was pretty fascinating. The um, something terrible happens to Cammy of her own doing. Um, you know, what did you think about how it ended? And, um, and obviously you've read the whole series, but, um, you know, just kind of how do you think they did, Cullen did and Tyler did ending this first, this first kind of arc? Yeah, it, it's funny that where they end, even at the end of volume one, wherever they end that specific arc, you could almost see that as the end of Harrow County. They do it in a really, you know, the volume one ends with Emmy saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be my own type of person. Everyone kind of accepts it. So you could have ended it there. And then with Cammy, I mean, that is, a, it's a, a, just a kind of tragic way to go. And I felt bad for her again, just a little bit at the end where she's, you know, panicking and like, please don't let this happen to me because in her head, this whole thing was going to go differently. She was going to have a sister. There were going to be buddy witches. They were going to burn the whole world down. <laughs> and it instead ends with their mother witch dragging her back into the earth. And it's like, wow, this is tragic. But also it is a really tight ending. Like you were saying, it's something that if they were to end Harrow County there, it's like, okay, like they, they don't leave anything all that loose in between it's you you kind of could be satisfied but you want more and then the the wanting more is what draws you into the next volume where it's like okay so now what happened <laughs> yeah i think that's right i think what you do feel a little bad for cammy because she's evil but she doesn't and she knows she's evil but she had an evil plan and her evil plan was foiled and in that moment of her of hester pulling her down into the earth she realizes Emmy was right. And the look on her face is heartbreaking and also like fist pumping. Like, yes, we do. <laughs> but also like, oh, you're also just a dumb, you know, a dumb kid. Like you're 18, but you're not really, neither of them really have, have matured. They're still like 12 or 13 mentally because of right. just the way they were raised. So in different ways. So yeah, I agree. That was just what an ending. And um, it, uh, yeah, it, I definitely wanting more. And, and you're right, right at the very bottom, it just says like in, in, uh, you know, the little script to be continued. You're like, all right, I'm, I'm yep. in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So the last question I always ask everybody is, um, if you could hand this book to one person, whether it's a particular person, like you have a name in mind or type of person, who do you hand this to? Who do you hand Harrow County to and why? I think I would hand Harrow County to, and I say this coming out of, I was an English major in college, and I knew a lot of people who loved literature and storytelling, but didn't like comics. And I feel like this is one of those books you could hand to them and be like, this is not all superheroes. It's not all, you know, there, there's some really complex sort of rich folklore going on in here. Um, yeah, so I think if, if I had to hand it to any type of person, it's if you like storytelling and folklore and you're not certain about comics, this is a good comic to be like, wow. I agree completely. Yeah, as a comic nerd, since I was 12, and I also was an English major, um, you mentioned whether the, you know, writing those opinion stories for DCN. When I was in college, I actually wrote a paper for an English lit, for an American lit course, where I argued that Poison Ivy was the descendant of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Rappuccini's daughter. And, um, <laughs> Do you remember Hawthorne's Rappuccini's daughter? Do you know that story? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you laughed. So I thought you were like, oh, I get that. So I like, I, I even like photocopied in color. Like I spent the money of pages from different Poison Ivy books to like support my point for my paper. And my, my teacher, Dr. Miller, she was like, I am giving you an A on this because I don't really understand what the hell. <laughs> I don't, you've, I can't disprove you because I don't know enough. Like you clearly read the source material and you're making an argument and you've proven it. So it's kind of one of those things where she's, you know, an English professor and she ended up, you know, I think she's at Temple now actually. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And she, uh, she was just like, I don't, this isn't, don't do this again, but okay. <laughs> you know, uh, because right. People think of comic books as low art, but it's clear to me, Poison Ivy was a nod to, you know, Hawthorne's Rappuccini's daughter. And, and I agree. I think this is, like you said at the beginning, this is a God to go- a nod to Gothic storytelling. It's nod to just, folklore and fables things that are part of like you could easily believe if it weren't for tyler crook's amazing art this would be a great campfire scary story oh absolutely like this is totally designed in the oral tradition but because it's a and and if we were studying the oral tradition you i'm sure we've you know we have classes on that in undergrad (laughs) but comic books you know i know there are some some schools i think seth said where he got his mfa they actually had a class on comic books so Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, isn't that cool? <laughs> and I interviewed someone early on in this who is an indie guy who is doing a Kickstarter, and he actually got his Master's of Fine Arts in comic books at a school in Scotland. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. good. I know. So <laughs> something, you know, something to be like, hey, I, there's something down the line. Pretty amazing, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I agree. I think that's an excellent recommendation because I think that's right. I think um, superhero comics are great, too, and I think there's a commentary to be had in superhero comics. but. It is easy. It's much more formulaic. Uh, people can get lazy. There's a reason that superhero comic writers switch out every so often. Nobody really stays in a superhero comic for more than a few years at a time. Because you only have so many times you can, you know, how many times can somebody try to outstart, outsmart Superman? You right. can't get off to somebody else. Whereas with this, you've got a complete story that you're telling. Um, you know, you're going to get 32 issues or whatever, and you're going to you're going to get that story out there. So that's an excellent recommendation. I agree. And I think even on the front cover, I think there was a novelist who was like, if you hate comic books, read this. I think that's even like right <laughs> out of the cover of, of one of them. So I was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. I'm, that's a great recommendation. So let me turn this over to you. So I know you've got, you're on Twitter and you've got websites and stuff and I will link all those in the show notes, but I always want people to say them out loud because I am an audio learner. So um, I know, obviously, this is an audio medium, so please tell everybody how they can find you online. All right, so Twitter is the best way. Um, my Twitter is KelGainsWrite, K-E-L-G-A-I-N-E-S-W-R-I-T-E, um, and I have links on my Twitter to all of my other sites, and then also just on DC Comics News, opinion and editorial. <laughs> nice. And you are weekly on there, right? You do something once a week on there? Uh, for the... For the writing part, not so much. I'm on the podcast. The podcast every week, right. And so you've got two. So you've got the regular DCN podcast and you guys have started something new over there. Yes. Yep. We started a, um, it's Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. And we're just talking about um, the DC Universe Harley Quinn animated show. Um, It's, it is a great time. It's definitely not a, uh, not it's an it's a not safe for work podcast i'll say that sure much, sure but- <laughs> this one normally isn't i think i only swore once this time i always try to gauge how my <laughs> guests are if my guests are swearing like crazy i do too um yeah this is a this is a 
TV MA or uh, podcast MA, but yeah, um, yeah. definitely <laughs> anything to do with that Harley Quinn show on the DCU. There's no way that can be safe for uh, children nope. <laughs> at all. And the cool thing Not about this book, as scary as it is, I think you could hand Harrow County to like a mature enough 13 or 14 year old and it wouldn't, there's nothing in it that is so untoward. That, that is that, very true, yeah. Yeah, you know what it I mean? Actually, it's, it's a scary, creepy book, but, you know, I mean, kids, I read Stephen King's books when I was 13 and 14, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of stuff. You know, it's not as graphic as some of Stephen King's works, obviously, are, are more graphic than others. But I think this is a pretty safe book for kids who like to be scared and who like creepy stuff. Um, but it's not, it's, I mean, it's more tame than Paper Girls, which is about 12-year-olds. True, yeah. You know? And I love Paper Girls. I, mean, I, can, I cannot sing the praises of that book enough, but this is excellent. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for, um, for recommending this book to me and for agreeing to come back in a little while to talk more about this. And, and I'm, I'm trying to build a um, Sin City roundtable of previous guests. So if that's something you're ever, I don't know if you read Sin City. Um, I haven't. Well, but it is actually on my shelf of to reads. So. Okay. All right. So yeah, that's something down the line. I think maybe I may make that because this is like, I think you're going to be, I think this will be 18 or 19. So, you know, you always want to try to do like around like a, like a number, like an anniversary. So like either 25 or 50, I want to do like a big one where I get a bunch of people in and we do like a big two or three hour show where it's like, we're going to go crazy about something that that's iconic. And I thought like Sin City would awesome, be a great yeah. place to do that for. So before then, you'll probably be back on to talk more about Harrow County because you know, there's yes. so much to talk about. So if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Tricycle Boombox, or um, you can find me I have my own website at arfarina.com, which you can also get through my Twitter. And make sure you listen to the rest of the Comics in Motion guys, Max's Mandatory Marvel in DC, and um, Mike's Star Wars Comics and Canon, and of course, Chris and Dave with the flag flagship show, uh, where they do TV and movie reviews. And um, thanks, everybody. And I will see you next time. When I look out my window Many sights to see And when I look in my window So many different people to be That it's strange So strange You got to pick up every stick up every stitch you got to pick up every stitch mm -hmm. must be the season of the witch must be the season of the witch yeah Looking over 
different people to be it's strange 